0: Hello there, welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing and climate change. I'm Sarah, your podcast editor, and it's fantastic to be with you here to bring you episode eight of season two. In this episode, we are continuing with our conversation with Anne-Marie Elias, the CEO of Becken Capital. Your hosts are Viss and Adriana, so get keen for some more insights into how we can make a real and powerful impact to help our communities. This is Episode 8 of Season 2 with Anne-Marie Elias, Part 2.
1: Now we're sort of switching gears, Anne-Marie. So you made the shift from the government landscape into the startup landscape, and for someone who wouldn't have experience in those fields, that seems like a huge shift. They seem like opposites. Like one's the government, and you've got all, and you've got all these, all these sort of, I guess, formalities. And startup is so fast-moving, things like that. Um, How did you get involved in the scene, and what was the process like? I
2: fell into it because I was very blessed to meet a woman called Nikki Williamson, who I call the startup and tech goddess. And she noticed me on Facebook. I think we were mutual friends and had mutual friends. And she saw the work that I was doing in government, which I was always trying to bring innovation, different ways of working through government. And she saw it and she got introduced to me through mutual friends and we went out for a a drink and she said, oh, you don't seem very suited to government. (laughs) I thought, no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always a bit of a square peg in a round hole in government. And she said, oh, have you ever been to a hackathon? And I went, a what? hack a what? (laughs) No, what are you talking about? And she goes, I think you're entrepreneurial. I said, no way. No, no, I'm a policy geek. I'm not entrepreneurial at all. And she invited me to go to a hackathon. And that was the event that changed my life, right? So you can imagine, I don't know, have you guys been to a hackathon?
1: I have in uni, uh, yeah. It's good fun.
2: Oh, Adrienne, you've got to go, okay? (laughs) I will. Like, you, you have to go, right? So everyone that's listening, you must attend a hackathon, right? It's an event where tech people, design people, policy people come together and work on solving a problem over 48 hours. Well, I could not believe in my life that these people could come together in a room, they don't even know each other, they form a team and within 48 hours they have an MVP. When government could take 10 years and spend billions of dollars and get absolutely nothing, right? So I was just like, oh, oh, my God. Okay, so I was like went to every hackathon for about three years. I just woke up every morning, looked on Twitter, where are the hackathons going on in Sydney? And I went to every, I went to blockchain hackathons, I went to deep tech, I went to every hackathon imaginable. And I felt really inadequate, right? Because I can't code, I'm not a designer, you know, not everything was about social impact. So they didn't always need a, a subject matter expert with my skills, but I could take photos and I was really good at tweeting. So I became the person that documented the stories of the teams because I'm a good storyteller and I loved it, right, because I got to know the different teams, I got to talk to them, uh, I got to find out who they were and what they were doing and what sort of project they were working on and I had a blast and I was literally addicted for three years going to every single hackathon. And then through that Annie Parker, who was friends with Nicole, had the opportunity to set up TechFugees here in Australia after a friend of hers founded it in the UK. And Nikki said, come on, let's go and help Annie Parker. So we did, and the rest is history. Because that as well was I could not have had two more amazing and strong women and inclusive women uh, on my team to introduce me to this world. But what blew me away is that the world is extremely diverse So really there's lots of people that look like us in those rooms. So it didn't feel like going to a normal conference where it was mainly Anglo people and you're the person that sticks out as looking quite different. But it was like, oh, wow, there's heaps of people, maybe not as many women when I first started, but that shifted as well. And so it wasn't a difficult transition at all. It was quite effortless because it was 10 years ago now. Uh, God, I can't believe it was that long ago. And I, I took up at fish burners and I, I just was like a sponge, mm. right? But that's probably one of the, the things that I like best about myself is that I love learning, mm. right? So I am 56 years old and I love learning. So I never have a problem if you say, hey, let's go and try. I'll go, yeah, okay, let's go. I might be completely bad at it, but who cares? So that desire to learn something new and, you know, it blew my mind, right, because what I I saw and I started to document because I was going to do a PhD on it, it was that cross-sector collaboration, cross-discipline collaboration is what happens in those teams and you don't have to know each other and you don't have to be anything, but it's having, you know, so... Think of it this way, if you have five people in a team that are all developers, they can build something but they can't explain it or sell it and it won't look pretty. Get five designers, they can't build it much but they'll make something look pretty and probably can design it in a way that looks lovely but no one, it's not functional. And then you get five storytellers together and they can talk the house down but nothing will be produced. So for me, it's the alchemy of collaboration that happens when you bring a developer with a designer, with a subject matter expert, with a salesperson, with a finance person, and then boom, you get something totally special. So then for my sins or for my craziness, I thought I'm going to teach government how to work this way. (laughs) And I set up something called The Collective, which was really working with family and community services and getting private sector at a regional level, so FACS operated in regions. So we started with North Sydney and we brought all the big tech companies that sit in North Sydney and all the big corporates like Johnson & Johnson and we brought people in from housing, health, education and not-for-profits and we sat down and had a very honest conversation about what was happening in the area. So the northern suburbs of Sydney has a higher rate of domestic violence than Western Sydney, yet it's not funded for it because there are no reports. So in Western Sydney, there's reports. In Northern Sydney, there's a lot of women ending up in hospital with a broken nose or a split forehead from falling down the stairs for the seventh time. There's a very high suicide rate in the Northern Beaches, you know, very high right, lots of young people being left alone by their parents who get divorced and move overseas and leave the kids who are 15 in a mansion with lots of money and no supervision. So, you know, we we got real about what the problems were. I think it was the first time the department was that frank in a, in a forum about where the problems were, but also starting to talk to people like Johnson & Johnson about the number of, you know, single mums living in public housing that might be ready for employment in the next few years once their kids turn five and that to me is the way you solve problems and i you know when i left fax the whole system kind of fell apart there's one region i think that's still maintaining it but i thought about it again recently it wasn't brain surgery it was a bit what my parents taught me public private partnerships are awesome bring in the private sector, bring in community, bring in, bring in, bring in, and everyone work together to solve a problem because by trying to solve it on our own, it hasn't worked for decades. So, you know, I that's what I was trying to engender and I thought about it recently again with Northern Rivers, like if there was the collective, it would have been able to mobilise action a lot quicker because there would have been that connection already there. So, you know, I may revive it again, who knows. But it's that collaboration, I think, that I really want to underscore that I learned from the process of a hackathon. We apply the methodology of like lean canvas, agile, to the way that government might come up with ideas and process things, we can do it a lot quicker. So the notion of rapid prototyping, which was designed, which was founded by Bill O'Chi at Google when he produced Google Glass is. He shut the doors and he said okay let's produce google glass with whatever's in the building so they didn't have fancy cutters or anything they just built the first google glass prototype out of what they had and to me that generated for me this is what happens in a hackathon like you don't get anything special you've got to work with what you've got which is essentially your brain and that you know collaboration and thinking um you know so yeah I think I'm still passionate about that and I still think that that's how we're going to solve problems. And I am forever grateful to Nikki Williamson for seeing me, you know, for seeing who I was and, and inviting me to that world. So I guess because of that, you know, I've always been open for young people to approach me, always happy to mentor, um, you know, to be there to, you know, talk to young people because I, you know, I wasn't so young when Nikki <laughs> gave me that opportunity, but I have always been really lucky with opportunities. So, you know, it's an obligation to check my privilege and realise that I've got to pay it forward every day.
1: For sure. I think when you mentioned hackathon, I was like, wow, that's actually perfect for you. I was thinking that in my head. Um, and you have to you have to let us know when you're attending the next hackathon. I'm sure um, quite a few members of our community would definitely be interested. Um, and then the other thing I found really interesting, Anne-Marie, is that you love learning. So I um, wanted to ask you, uh, for all the young people out there on our podcast, what's, some, what's an exciting social impact trend that people can really get into?
2: Look, I think... Getting involved with Sydney University Impact Investing Society, if I can say, if you're at Sydney Uni, Um, definitely get involved in that, really super impressed with Liam and the team there and what they're trying to do. Um, You know, at first I was a bit annoyed about the name because it's Impact Investing and I've got issues. I get triggered with Impact Investing because I don't necessarily believe in it, But I got over that because I saw what they were trying to do and they're trying to bring that next generation of young people to look at investment, look at how they can work in social impact, look at how they can invest in social impact. So, you know, fully supportive of things like that. You know, get along to fish burners. You know, I've, I've been there recently. That's where I cut my teeth as well, um, hanging around there and meeting startups. Like every Friday night they have a pitch night. You know, if you haven't been to a fish burners pitch night, go along. Um, It is really, really great to see the community there. And it's all different age groups, right? Like mostly young people, but all different age groups. TechFugees, we haven't had a hackathon in a few years. But we're starting with a meetup on World Refugee Day, because now we're going to be receiving Ukrainian refugees, as well as Syrians and Afghan refugees. So we thought let's bring the community back together again, Liverpool Library, 20th of June, 5 till 8pm, and it's just a meet-up at this stage but we'll probably have a hackathon later on in the year. And if I can tell you a quick story about the very first hackathon we did in Liverpool and we went out to Liverpool because I said to Annie and Nicole, we can't do it in the city because a lot of the young women won't be allowed. To go that far. So I'm committed to making sure that young women are allowed to attend. So we partnered with Settlement Services International, which is a refugee settlement agency. And I went out uh, several times to meet some of the parents so that they could see that their kids weren't going to a disco, that there were responsible (laughs) adults that were going to be there. And one of my favourite or two favourite stories came out of that. Shekek Rizai was 16 when she came to the hackathon and she won that hackathon and she won a prize of uh, attending a design school which she did and then she ended up at UTS studying design and I'm still in touch with her today and I said to her I still can't believe your parents let you go and she goes oh they were so happy because they met you and you know they knew we would be safe and all of that. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes the world of difference. You know, if I didn't check my privilege and I didn't remember that I wasn't allowed out at that age, that my escape was being able to go to the Ethnic Communities Council as the youth deputy chairperson, that was my out, that was my liberation into the world. So I had to think of others that might be in that same situation two decades, three decades on because I need to make sure that those girls aren't left out because my mum would not have let me go, you know, if we fast back, backed into that time. The other story is Narari Ducho. Narari had arrived in Australia three months earlier from Syria and he'd been uh, in the tech industry there and he stood at the hackathon and pitched his story, which was I've been here three months and I know my trajectory is going to be cleaner security card or Uber driver. So I wanted to talk about how I've got skills and I have skills in tech. Anyway, long story short, he met Anna Robson at that hackathon and they created RefugeeTalent.com, which is an agency that places skilled refugees into skilled jobs. They're now working with other organisations internationally to source highly skilled refugees to come to Australia. And Narari, like i I've got tears in my eyes because I can never tell that story without crying because I think if we weren't there at that moment, at that time, where would he be? Sorry. Wow. But I really do. I really, you know, I just am so proud of the work that we've done and we did that as volunteers, by the way. Like we, we do it as volunteers and we continue to do it today as volunteers but... That's what makes those things really meaningful is being able to, you know, to see that that man's life changed because we bothered to go out there and give
3: him the opportunity, you know.
1: Yeah, for sure.
3: That's definitely not something you'd be able to do just from reading data. So that goes to underscore your earlier point of seeing the people that are actually making up that percentage you see on a spreadsheet it's not just numbers they have people they have stories they have lives they have experiences behind that and just learning how we can acknowledge that and work to help in trying that to empower them and just acknowledge that they are people not just a statistic for us to cite and report yeah
2: And he was even on a billboard for City of Sydney and I saw him and I cried in the city. I'm like, oh, my God, look at you over there. You're on a bus. You're on a billboard. He goes, I know. He's a star now. He's a tech founder, by the way. Woo. Three months into arriving in Australia.
1: Phenomenal.
3: That's amazing. That's nothing short of amazing.
2: And, you know, it felt like I was able to redress a bit of what my parents went through. You know, that, that's kind of my, the love in my heart is that, oh, my God, my mum didn't get that opportunity. She got it later. But we're going to definitely help these people now that come into the country that are skilled because they deserve to have jobs that are skilled.
3: I think just hearing from all your experiences as well, you are so clearly a leader. You are one of those people driving impact, wanting to do good for the society And I think we might shift gears a little bit as to how that sort of influences you. So can you tell me a little bit about how that experience has shaped your leadership style? I'm a super
2: reluctant CEO. I've never wanted (laughs) to be a CEO. I've always liked to be the chief disruptor. I've always liked being the naughty one, you know, the one behind the CEO that goes, no, let's do it. Let's ask for forgiveness later. We can do it. It doesn't matter. (laughs) So, I felt really overwhelmed when I was asked um, to take on this role. I actually thought they were crazy. I'm like, I'm so immature. I'm not a finance CEO at all. Jesus help me. Um, But, you know, I actually went to bed one night. I was crying because I felt so overwhelmed, right? I was like, this is crazy. And I was crying and crying and then I woke up the next morning and some voice came into my head. It was like a whisper, no one's asking you to be the CEO of Westpac. It's okay. (laughs) So perspective people, right? Beckon has a team of 10. I've led teams of 500 people in government. You know, I've led teams of 20. I've led teams of 70. So it was getting that perspective of going, just calm down, just take a breath. No one's asking you to do what you're not capable of doing. The The company is filled with Goldman Sachs Bankers Trust finance people. You don't need to be that finance person. You need to lead and you need to launch and you need to talk about why Beckon needs to exist from an impact perspective and that was what turned my point of view around and calmed me down and just thought okay it's fine i can i can do this you know i can do this and it hasn't been easy like i've never been a ceo before i've been a team leader i've been a manager and blah 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 but i've i don't know i've just so i created a t-shirt that says bitch i'm the ceo and at the back it says Chief Empowerment Officer because that's actually what I do, right? My job is to get out of everyone's way, <laughs> uh, to manage the the finances, like to make sure that, you know, the budget's going on track and all of that, that we're reporting appropriately and that the team has what they need. So whether it be the Chief um, Investment Officer or the you know the business analysts or the interns, my job is to be their cheerleader and to say, what are you working on and what do you need? So it's really not that hard, but there was a lot that I had to overcome in my own fear of finances. Um, you know, I, I remember I, I hired an external CFO and I said to her, I am so bad at this, and she said, well, we'll see. And then she took me through some things and it's like, I know balance sheets. (laughs) I was a single mom; I raised two kids on a decent income, but still, like, obviously I was running a household and budgets and inputs and outputs and all that kind of stuff. You know, and I did that for government programs as well. So it was just coming to terms with that it's not that overwhelming. Take a deep breath. Focus on what you're good at, which is empowering people, it's getting the word out there of why we exist and why we need to exist, and it's really driving home the social impact intent of Beckham. And yeah. I think, yeah, I think I was able to balance it out. And, you know, I'm still doing tech refugees. I'm still going to a lot of events. I'm still, you know, I haven't changed a lot. I've just, I guess, had to... Interestingly, because you've got a question in there about books and I'm going to say radical forgiveness, right, because as a CEO you really have to be solid in yourself and you're not. You're, You're a human being that's got your issues and your background and your flaws and so the biggest thing that I read was Radical Forgiveness by a guy called Colin Tipping Just to remember that those situations that trigger you are triggering you because it's something you need to learn. So rather than to go, oh, that's a horrible thing to say, or that's a horrible person, or I don't like that, it's like, wow, what is this here to teach me? And that's about taking responsibility. And that's actually the role of the CEO. It's not about casting blame, it's not about playing games, it's not about putting people against each other. It's about uniting, empowering, and, you know, making sure that the accountability is there for yourself and for others.
3: Yeah. I think you might've touched on this a little bit, but I would assume forgiveness, like radical forgiveness, forgiveness for others, as well as yourself is something that any CEO or any leader would need if they wanted to be successful. And I guess not burn out halfway through their role, but And not take things
2: personally, right? It's so easy to take things personally. And, you know, I'm going to be super honest with you guys. I had the whole financial thing. That was my Achilles heel. So if someone so much as said, oh, let me take you through that, I took that as, oh, my God, mansplaining, what's going on? People don't think I know. And yet I set up that narrative because I was
3: like, oh, I didn't know anything about finance.
2: I set that language up. I set that scenario up, not anyone here, not the men, not the women, not the finances, no one but me. So I had to, in that self-forgiveness, I had to go, oh, shit, forgive yourself for being that way. Um, it's it's not the way you need to be. You've got to forgive yourself for being that, you know, for for that, but you've also got to forgive others. And by understanding your flaws and your uh the things that get to you is the way you can understand yourself better and you can be a better leader
3: because in fact
2: being a better leader is being, being whole within yourself so that you can be there for others. If I'm not whole, I can't help anyone else be whole. So it's a constant exercise and I think there's maybe some Ideal or idea. Oh, you're a CEO, so you must be great. No, you're just a human being that has your flaws that, you know, that, that needs to deal with that stuff so that you can be a better leader. I mean, it's the same thing being a better parent. You know, I, I don't think I was the best parent, but I'm still trying and my kids are 24 and 29. You know, how, how do you go from molly coddling and babying someone? To respecting them as an adult that's the parent-child relationship well in a company I mean I come in here I'm not the finance expert but I've got to be strong in what I am here for and I've got to like have that confidence and not diminish myself in the way I speak in front of others and then get the shits when people go oh let me help you because it's financial when I've pretty much given that signal so I've stopped doing that and I'm much more in control of of those conversations um, because I needed to get over this failing maths 20 years ago. Like what? Right? So that's why that forgiving yourself, forgiving others is actually quite a big role. And I wouldn't have known that. I I would not have known that if I hadn't have taken on this role.
3: Yeah, I think that brings us to a nice question that we could end So as the leader of an organisation, how do you rally your team behind a mission? So I've got a lot of energy, <laughs>
2: <laughs> which um, I thought it was really funny, but when I did my first post when I joined Beckon Capital in September and I'm like, hey, I've joined Beckon Capital, one of my friends jumped on and he said, Beckon, watch out, she has the energy of an 18-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so I think... Um, you know, for me it's about inspiring people. And inspiring people is about breathing life into. You know, so how do I do that? I come in like I made I made my mother's world famous 20-hour cooked lamb and I brought it in because on Tuesdays and Thursdays the interns are in, all of our staff are in. And I did that because I'm a human being and I am a mother. So it's not about not being yourself, right? Like I am known to turn on the music in the back room and start dancing too in the middle of the day. You know, I, I am still myself, right? Of course there are times that you have to be serious and all of that. But I'm I'm not, you know, I am a joyful person. I am, I do like having fun. And so we have a stand-up meeting um, once a week and it's on a Tuesday so that the interns can be a part of it. And that's where we go around to the whole team. Everyone talks about their priorities for the week and we go around and say, what does anyone need? And that's how we sort of come together and then rally around them. I mean, I cook for them sometimes. I go out and buy silly things for them, um, but also opening up about myself. So I often talk about my mum and the difficulty that I'm going through, you know, watching her go through her end of life because I'm a whole person. You know, I'm a human being. I'm I'm not a machine. I'm not a perfect CEO. I'm a person that has a life that has, you know, has has their scars. And so I think, you know, the thing for me is finding that balance. And finally, finally, at the age of 56, finding that calm. Right. And I've never been calm. I've always been angry. You know, I think the the energy that has fueled me has been anger and therefore I've been very reactive whereas I think the last eight months being with Beckon and reading Radical Forgiveness and having a, a leader coach you know has really just brought me back and the beautiful thing is I ran into a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in years and he said to me wow you are so much calmer and that's probably the greatest compliment that someone can give me because you know, as, as my mother used to say, you know, you don't attract flies without honey and probably that's not the right thing. I'm probably thinking of it in Italian and translating it very badly. But you know what I mean? You can't attract uh, people without honey. So being sweet and you can only be sweet when you're comfortable within yourself. And you accept all of it, right? Like I get angry. I I, I still am reactive sometimes. But generally my space is trying to be calm and trying to be supportive of others and try and bring that team together, in particular the young people. So I've been the hugest champion of Arringtons. Right? And you can talk to Horton, Andy or Sandy and, you know, I'm always like saying to them, you've got to come to Hackathon with me or... You know what do you like eating? Let's do it. or Sandithi I met I met her at the Lakemba iftar festival one night with her friends and things like that. Do you know what I mean? It, it doesn't it's not a nine to five thing, you know, like we do things. And you know Elijah, who's one of the guys that's working on on our platform, you know, you know we've talked about going rock climbing and things like that. So it's looking at things that bring people together, but not forcing people to do it, but just sort of saying, hey, how about we go rock climbing next weekend? Um, you know, we've got a really flexible work environment, so I, everyone can work from home except for Tuesdays and Thursdays when the interns are in because I want a full office those days. So there's only really two days a week that we're all physically in the same place. But, you know, it's it's important to talk about things honestly you know, and and be honest about what's going on, you know. So me talking about the, the, the difficulty of going through mum's end of life, you know, it may not affect people today because the interns are young like you, but in 10 years' time or 20 years' time, there'll be a moment of, oh, my God, I remember Anne-Marie going through that and she did share a lot and, you know, and that's how people learn and how they grow. And for me, I guess... The one thing that's been constant is I've always been a very spiritual person and I I really try and bring that into the work and hence being able to read something like Radical Forgiveness when I should be telling you, read Atomic Habits or The Five Second Rule or, you know, whatever. And I've read those things too. The other book that I was going to suggest, and I know you're not asking, but really, really special book for entrepreneurs or anyone on a life journey is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho.
1: So it's
3: something
2: different, right? But it's about creating, creating your own reality. And, you know, I've reread it a 100 times. And every time I read it, I get something else out of it.
1: Yeah, amazing. I think like, you brought up some great points, the idea of I guess being self-compassionate, being open, being transparent, and I think supporting young people because we've seen so many young people, including all of our team at Greenfluence, we really like, really enjoy social impact and something aligned to our values. Um, so I think that's awesome to awesome to hear. And and yeah, I really want to thank you for sharing that.
2: There's a lot of young people interested in this space. Why? Because your future literally depends on it. Right? Like you are creating the future. And my greatest hope is for your generation to finally take over. And that's when I'll exhale. That's when my other shoe will drop. And it really moves me, right? Because you guys don't get it yet. You are the future. You are going to be the politicians, the heads of agencies, the heads of Goldman Sachs. You are those people. So for me to get to you before you become those people and to say as a Generation X Who's really there to move along the boomers and usher in the, the wise. It's a very profound point that has always given me a level of comfort. The future is going to be in great hands because it's in your hands. And I just can't wait.
3: That what a perfect way to wrap up. The episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Golden quotes everywhere. Thank you so much for coming along. Oh for my God, lives.
2: my privilege, really and truly my privilege. I still don't understand why you young people care about someone like me, but I think it's awesome. I really do. It, it just warms my heart.
1: That's really amazing to hear. And I think like we care about you so much because of all this amazing experience and the fact that you're imparting all your wise wisdom and having the energy of an 18-year-old as your friend <laughs> put it. So I think... Yeah, I think everyone will be really keen to listen to this episode. So I really want to thank you for your time, Anne-Marie, and thank you for supporting GreenFluence.
0: What did you think of part two with Anne-Marie? Her passion for people and optimism is just so infectious. It was such a privilege to have her on the podcast. The power of supporting others just can't be understated. If you'd like to connect with Anne-Marie, please find her on LinkedIn, All the links will be in the show notes. We'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts. So please join us on Facebook and LinkedIn to be part of our Grow Influence community. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with the latest episodes. And we'd appreciate if you would rate us and leave a comment. It means a lot. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode for part two with Anne-Marie. I hope you have a fantastic day and we will catch you in the next one.